Romans chapter 10, verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 21, will be the scripture reading for the sermon this morning. So we conclude Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through 21. Hear God's word. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? For first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, once more, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great argument. Romans chapter 10, what a blessing it has been to us. And as we follow this tightly reasoned argument to the end, we pray once we might have this new insight but also the whole of the argument would become clearer to us as well and that more than anything unlike Israel we would hear with faith and and so believe and be saved or having been saved that our faith might be greatly strengthened through what is said and through what is heard and what is believed we ask this in Jesus name amen Well, based on what was said last time in verses 16 and 17, the basis of that sermon, it would have seemed, and and perhaps I even gave this false impression, that the argument was more or less finished. This very tightly reasoned argument that we find not only in verses 11 through 17, but in the entirety of Romans chapter 10. I think I even said that the sequence of thought is finished, and in one sense it is, at least insofar as verses 11 through 17 are concerned or even a sequence of thought we could say began which began in verse 6 where the righteousness of faith which we preach that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is being heard through the preaching and yet not all have heard not all have obeyed or excuse me not all have believed not all have obeyed some are still unbelieving for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God that's more or less the sequence of thought there, which began uh, either in verse 6 or verse 11. It's, it's a statement or a summary of how the gospel goes out and how it accomplishes salvation. It does so through the preaching, through the invitation, and through consequent faith. But we must remember as we come to the close of Romans chapter 10, a point which perhaps by now we have forgotten, and that is that the overarching point of chapter 10 fits in with the overarching point chapters 9 through 11 and chapter 10 is situated within that argument as a kind of excursus or parentheses and the overarching point is this it it is that of Israel's unbelief the apostle Paul is reflecting upon unbelief as a subject because of Israel you remember at the beginning of chapter 9 though I won't read the verses he speaks of his sorrow for Israel And then he tells us that at the end of chapter 9, in essence, again, I won't, read, I won't read the verses, but I'll just summarize them. At the end of chapter 9, he tells us, having sorrowed for them, that here is the situation. The Gentiles are in, the Jews are out. 
which leads him to say at the beginning of chapter 10, you see the argument still in view in chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So again, the picture is this. In this unfolding argument, the Gentiles are in, the Jews are out. And it's clear from what Paul says, especially at the beginning of each chapter, chapters 9 and 10, that this is a matter of sorrow for him. It's a matter of continual grief. It's a great burden that lies or that laid upon his soul. Not only that, but it is so perplexing from the standpoint of the Old Testament scriptures that it's something that needs to be explained. How did this ever come to be? And he explains this along two lines. On the one hand, it is according the explanation is according to God's purpose or his sovereignty. His purposes, according to election, will stand. That's the great argument of chapter nine. And those purposes, he says, and this is part of the greater argument of chapters nine through eleven. Those purposes include both Jews and Gentiles. But the great thing to be considered whenever we ask why are things as they are? The great thing to be considered is God's plan and God's purpose. So that's the first thing. But the other thing, which he begins to explain at the at the end of chapter 10, but or excuse me, chapter nine. But is the great theme of chapter 10 is Israel's unbelief. Israel's stumbling was her own fault. Because she heard the gospel and she did not believe. And that's ultimately where we're going to end in chapter 10. So. If you look at these two chapters side by side, we could we could put them under these two headings. Chapter nine deals with God's sovereignty and chapter 10 deals with human responsibility. And both are legitimate answers to this question. Well, the tragedy of Israel was this: she stumbled and fell at what God was doing, his plan and his purpose as it was being realized before her very eyes. We just read at the beginning of chapter 10, she was zealous for God, but ignorant of his righteousness. That's the one thing they thought they knew, but they didn't. And when the righteousness of faith, verse 6, chapter 10, when the righteousness of faith was preached to them, they did not accept it or believe it. So going back to the verses we considered last time, verse 16 of chapter 10, they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? The Apostle Paul is reflecting upon this tragedy, even as Isaiah was reflecting upon this tragedy in his day. Whether you look at it from the standpoint of Isaiah or the Apostle Paul, or we could even say to this very day. The Jewish people have heard the good news of her Messiah, and yet they did not believe the report that was made to them. And in, in verse 18, he is beginning or continuing rather to reflect upon this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? You see, the argument is continuing. Verse 18. If faith comes by hearing, verse 17, yet not all have obeyed or believed. Verse 16, that, ex that leads him to explain what has happened. How it is that so many have heard and yet did not believe. And that is the purpose of the verses before us, with a special focus on the nation of Israel. And thus they form a fitting conclusion to this chapter, which, as I've said, deals primarily with the whole question of 
How is it that the Jews ever came to be in a position of standing on the outside rather than standing on the inside? And there are four factors that explain this present position. The first of which being stated negatively, and as well as the second, the first two are both stated negatively. But I say, have they not heard? Not for a lack of hearing. Have they not heard, Paul asks. That is a very interesting way of posing the question. The commentators want to know, who is he talking about? Is he talking about the Jews or is he talking about mankind in general? I've already made it clear that I believe he's talking about the Jews here, though I will argue this, this verse and the thought contained in all of these verses, verses 18 through 21, do have a wider application. But the primary application is that of the Jews. He's still grappling with Israel's unbelief, even as Isaiah did in his own day. Israel's persistent refusal to turn and be saved, though God pled with her for centuries. Oh, look here, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So then, can Israel's unbelief be explained in terms of a lack of hearing? Obviously not. Do you remember how I put it last time? Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring uh, glad tidings of good things. And did anyone, did any nation or any people ever have the gospel so beautifully preached to them as Israel did? Did God ever send such, uh, such beautiful messengers to anyone as he did to them? He sent to them the prophets, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He sent to them John the Baptist. He sent to them the Lord Jesus, even his own son, to beautifully bear good tidings of of glad things. He sent the apostles. And yet here is the amazing thing. Despite all of that, Lord, who has obeyed? Who has believed? It was as though I said last time, it was as though Isaiah and the apostle Paul were lamenting. And still we could lament, speaking of the Jewish People as a people, it's as though none of them believed. Can we explain their unbelief by a lack of hearing? Most definitely not. If anyone ever had the privilege of hearing and hearing in the most beautiful way imaginable, it was the Jewish people. But it's fascinating to notice. You see, he says, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. And he he establishes this as he likes to do, especially when he's arguing with Jews. He establishes it by quoting the Old Testament. And he quotes here Psalm 19.4, which belongs in the first section, verses 1 through 6 on general revelation. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and to the world uh, and their words to the ends of the world. So the principle of that verse is not special revelation, as in the case of verses 7 to the end of Psalm 19, but general revelation, the works of creation that declare the glory of God. It's a very interesting way to establish the universal call of the gospel. And yet that's how the Apostle Paul does it here, that the sound of the gospel has gone forth. As John Murray notes, the same principle that is found in that verse in its original setting That the works of creation declare the glory of God far and wide throughout the whole earth. That same principle can be applied to the preaching of the gospels, uh, the gospel. As the heavens declare the glory of God universally to all men, 
so too the sound of the preaching has gone forth into the earth far and wide, so that those who have heard, most especially the sons of Abraham, those who have heard, cannot plead ignorance. It's just exactly the same argument that you find the apostle making of mankind in general in chapter 1 of the book of Romans. What may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Did they not hear? Yes, they did. What then can we say of them? Only that they are without excuse. To quote John Murray again, he says, the universalism of the gospel, which the apostle is referring to in chapter 10 finds its parallel in the universality of general revelation expressed in Psalm 19. And we will find the Apostle Paul arguing uh, just in this way in Acts chapter 14 this evening, where he makes an appeal to general revelation in, in calling men to repent and be saved. But you may have already noticed me saying, uh, me, me stating this in a more general way. And so... I think it is fair to see and to say at this point that these verses are capable of a wider application than just Israel. For that's just exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He isn't just talking about Israel. He's talking about, well, the sound of God's glorious works filling the earth, general revelation, but also the sound of the gospel filling the earth, special revelation. Well, if Israel's unbelief cannot be explained by a lack of hearing, they of all people. Surely the same can be said of many others. For indeed, the gospel has gone forth far and wide. The sound of the gospel, the glad tidings of good things has indeed filled the earth. And already it was beginning to do so in the days of the apostles. That's the great story of Acts that we're considering together in the in the evening. The sound of the gospel filling the ears of men far and wide. Their words have been heard to the ends of the world. And what is the point of that? The point of stressing that is to say that men cannot plead ignorance as an excuse. No, they're without excuse. Have they heard? Have they not heard? Yes, indeed, they have. And so what the apostle is ultimately saying is something that's true of Israel more than anyone else. But it's also true in a universal sense, including all men and all the world. And that is that the light of the gospel is not put under a basket. That isn't what God is doing. Ever since Jesus came into the world, God has been publishing these glad tidings of good things far and wide. So that to use the light analogy, no, the light isn't put under a basket, but the light is shining. And the light of the gospel is filling the whole world. And God is filling men's ears With the good news of the gospel. How is he doing it? Well think of the earlier argument. He's doing it through the preaching. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. The word which is preached. God is not keeping the thing hidden. He's making it known. He's publishing the good news. Abroad. Even as he does through his general revelation. Their sound has gone out to all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. That is something which is equally true of general 
and special revelation. You ask me, does that mean that every individual has heard? No, I'm not saying that, and neither is Paul. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Paul does not mean every single individual has heard the gospel. That would uh, put an end to the mandate for missions. No, that's not even in his own day. Obviously, not everyone had heard the gospel. But what he means to finish the quote is that the gospel has not been hidden. It's been made generally known, and it's continuing to be made known. And so returning to Israel, the initial question I say then Have they not heard? Has Israel not heard? No, indeed, they have heard. Faith comes by hearing, but not in Israel's case, you see, if you take verses 17 and 18 together. Does God thereby take the blame? No, not at all. For long he filled their ears with the good news of the gospel. And if they did not believe it, the fault was their own. Remember, as I've said, the emphasis, the overarching emphasis And grappling with Israel's unbelief in chapter 10 is human responsibility. And so when Paul says, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. What he's saying is the blame is falling at their feet, not at God's. God has caused them to hear, but they did not believe. Number two, the second factor is found in the same form, though it's a different question, a slightly different question. But I say, did they not know? You notice it's the same form. But I say, have they not heard? But I say, did Israel not know? Is he saying the same thing? Well, not exactly. There's a difference between hearing and knowledge. And so let's notice that difference and say it wasn't for a lack of hearing, nor was it for a lack of knowledge. That's the second factor. And let me note that verse 19 confirms the notion that these verses are really about Israel. You see, in verse 18, you can ask the question, who's he talking about? But once you get to verse 19, you can't anymore. Or to verse 21. Did Israel not know? Verse 19. But to Israel, he says, verse 21. It's clear that the primary reference, at least, is to Israel. That's who he's talking about. It is about them that he's asking these questions. So the question is, did Israel know or did Israel not know? In other words, could she plead ignorance as the excuse for her unbelief? And the answer is surely not. Surely not. If there was ever anybody in all the world who knew the things of God as revealed in the Old Testament, it was the Jew. For to them was entrusted the oracles of God and they knew them. They taught them. They, they, they sought, at least, though we see they did not. They sought to take them to heart, to put them into practice. The, this was the absorbing interest of their lives, the knowledge of God, the righteousness of God. And was not, after all, by the way, you notice how Paul puts it. Was not Moses, was not Isaiah clear enough to them? Yes, he was. First, Moses says this, but Isaiah is very bold and says, how could these men plead ignorance, a lack of knowledge, When Moses and Isaiah were more than clear in speaking to them. You see, in describing this difference, I trust it's clear enough, but let me try just to make it as clear as I can. The difference between hearing and knowing. Sometimes people will say to me in a teaching setting, especially children, I don't know what you're saying. You see, they hear what I'm saying, but they don't know what I'm saying. That's the difference. There, there is such a way to hear but not to understand or to know what the preacher knows. And while I acknowledge that this is always a possibility, 
in a setting of teaching or preaching, especially where children are concerned, this was not a plausible excuse for Israel. They could not say, well, you know, we heard, but we didn't have any idea what you were talking about, Lord. No, they both heard and knew exactly what God was saying. They just chose to either ignore it or to reject it. In fact, as we'll see later, I laugh, but I really should cry. Not only did they reject it, but they just about killed every one of the messengers they could. So well did they understand what was being said to them. Consider first what Moses had to say to them. First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish Nation. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. You notice that God was speaking to Israel before she entered the promised land. In a sense, even before she was a nation, or at least took organized form as a nation, already God was dealing with her as a rebellious, as a contrary people, and was telling her what he was going to do. He was going to provoke Israel to jealousy and anger by a foolish nation, even before they were a nation. He said this in the original setting where Moses says this to quote John Murray again. This word from the song of Moses appears in a context in which Israel is being upbraided for unfaithfulness and perversity. This context corresponds to the situation with which Paul is dealing The situation has not changed. It really never did. This word which God spoke through Moses and which had abiding relevance even in Paul's day was spoken as a kind of rebuke. It's the same rebuke one finds our Lord uttering in the Gospels when he says. Chapter 21, verse 43, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, and you can't read. You can't read uh, these verses in chapter 10 of the book of Romans without thinking of this parable. He concludes by saying, therefore, I say to you, he's speaking to Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's exactly what Moses was saying or God through Moses. The kingdom of God one day would be taken from Israel as a result of their persistent rebellion and sin and unbelief. And it would be given to those who were outside already. Already God was making this clear to them before they entered the land. God would give it to them, the kingdom of God to a nation. You see, Israel knew. Did they not know? Yes, they did. But God would give it to an ignorant nation, a foolish nation, those who didn't know the Lord. And yet God was saying he would show favor to them even while rejecting Israel. Who are they, by the way? Who's the foolish nation? The foolish nation, it's not just the Gentiles, it's the church as composed largely of Gentiles. And this in turn, we see this in Acts. And so none of this should be surprising to us. This in turn would make Israel furious. It would make her jealous. It would make her angry. She would try to win back the people. She would try to kill the messengers. She indeed would kill many of the messengers, even as she killed the Lord Jesus. Do you notice that God himself seems to suggest this is part of his reason for doing so? I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to those who are outside in order 
so that you would be made angry and jealous to provoke her to jealousy and hopefully repentance. You you may be thinking of what Paul later says in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. It's a very similar statement. I say then, speaking of the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, Paul sees this as something which is initially bad, but ultimately hopeful. Israel will become angry. She will become jealous, but she will begin one day to come to her senses. We will see in Romans chapter 11, and she will begin again to cry out to the Lord. So this wasn't altogether bad, her anger, her jealousy. It had enormous potential. We have to save that for Romans chapter 11. We have to leave that for the future. I don't just mean future sermons. I mean the future of these uh, of this people we are considering who are so angry and so jealous and who've been rejected by God. But do you see what the apostle is saying that Moses said would happen, would happen, has happened. Moses had predicted it. Now it has happened. God was doing this very thing in the days of the apostles. And as the Jews were rejecting this this message and as they were becoming angry and jealous. The Apostle Paul is saying, did you not know that Moses said this very thing would happen? Next, there's what the, the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah is very bold and says, I, f- I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Notice the words very bold. Not only did the prophet Isaiah say this, but he put it in this bold and striking form. Did Israel really not know what was put so boldly, so clearly as this? How could God have made it any clearer? I was rejected by those who knew me, even Israel. I will be found by those who did not know me or did not seek me. It's a very similar thought that we find at the end of chapter nine. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? They weren't seeking it, yet they found it. How can we explain this? Only that God himself went out to them. And in going out to them, well, it's just another confirmation that the kingdom will be taken from Israel and given to others. In other words, it's as though God is saying, and he's saying it very boldly, that the time will come when God would, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, we just considered this in the evening, the time would come when God would turn to the Gentiles. That day was coming. And now that day had come, Paul is saying, do you not know That this was said again and again in the very scriptures you claim to believe. Why is this so important to see? It should be obvious by now, but let me try to make it plain. It's because what we find in the Gospels and Acts and in the epistles, such as Romans, is not a new teaching. Nor is it something surprising and untold in the Old Testament. That God would go forth from the Jews and he would turn to the Gentiles. But it it was the teaching That Israel had heard and knew perfectly well from the prophets. God was doing just exactly what he said he would. And he said this. Here's the amazing thing. 
He said this. He revealed this. He made this a matter of knowledge to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. They of all people, they only were the ones who knew this. Why then did they of all people reject the preaching of the apostles when they were simply telling them the very things the prophets had said before? Was it not perfectly clear that they neither knew the scriptures nor the power of God as Jesus had earlier said to them? Well, there are the first two factors. Let me come to a third, and that is God's sovereignty. This is the thing we need to see as we consider this whole question of Israel and its place in God's plan. And this is what the scriptures that Paul has cited proved. That God is free to do whatever he pleases. Do you notice, not in, uh, not in verse 18, but in verse 19 and verse 20 and verse 21. Do you notice in each of these, it is the Lord himself speaking. In each of these verses, the Lord is saying, here is what I'm doing. Here is what I'm going to do. Here is what I'm free to do. And no man is able to stand in my way. And what is the point of seeing this? Well, it's that we might see God's sovereign freedom, even as we saw it. In Romans chapter 9. And as we think of the subject of God's sovereign freedom. We again are forced to ask the question. How was it that Israel of all people would object to this doctrine? Did he not choose her? Was her election not the result of the same action on God's part? Or the result of the same sovereign freedom? Did not God state to them again and again in the old covenant that I did not choose you for anything that was lovely or becoming in you, but I chose you because it pleased me to do so. And if that was true of Israel, was God not free to choose others? How is it again that Israel of all people would have failed to miss the importance of God's sovereignty? And so I say or I ask along with Paul, did she not know this about God? The tragedy is that she didn't, or at least she acted as though she didn't, even as God had stated, to, stated it to her repeatedly. But here is something else about God's sovereignty that we see in these verses, and that is that salvation is a result of God's election. The purposes of God are according to election. That's what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. In other words, God realizes his purposes in saving man, not by nationality or anything else. It isn't what man hears or knows that saves him. It isn't anything in man. If it was, well, then Israel of all people would have been saved. If hearing and knowing were enough, well, then every Israelite would have been saved. But they weren't. Well, what does this prove? When God says in verse 20 that I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest by those who did not ask for me. By those who did not hear. By those who did not know. It proves once more that salvation is God's work and not man's. If man is saved, it is because of God. It is a matter of his sovereignty. And yet again, I say or I ask, did Israel not know this? Did God not reveal it to them of all people? How was it that she of all people fell into this terrible error whereby she imagined that she was saved already and they didn't need the prophets or they didn't need Jesus or they didn't need the apostles to preach the good news and the glad tidings to them? 
No, we are Israelites. We're the sons of Abraham. We don't need salvation. They made salvation something that God never made it, not even in the Old Testament. Do you appreciate the tragedy of this? Do you see why Paul was so burdened by this? If anyone ought to have known, it was Israel. Look at how he closes as a fourth point. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We could look at the picture in, in this way. Two sides, the side of God, the side of man. On the side of God, this is what we see. And if you've, well, if you've been reading the prophets this year in your Bible reading, I don't know how you could have missed this. Those of you reading McShane, we're reading Ezekiel right now. Right now, What do you see? We see God pleading with Israel, not because, you see, not because they were, were saved. Why would you plead with someone who was saved already? No, because they were wayward. They were contrary. They were disobedient. And yet there God is. After all these centuries gone by, after all this sin, after all this rebellion, all of the judgments God sent to them, still he is pleading, pleading with Israel to turn and to be saved. If there's one message in Ezekiel, you hope to find that's it. Now you say to me, God is sovereign, so why does he plead? Now I'm saying that. I'm actually saying that God is pleading with man. And you say, does that not negate his sovereignty? Well, my answer is this. Because God is God, is free to do what he pleases. You see, just as soon as we realize that God is sovereign and he can do whatever he likes, we've ceased to place any limitations Upon God. Let him plead as much as he likes. He's God. That's my answer. Yes, and he does so. He does so all day long. Not here or there, but all day long. The picture is one of long suffering and patience. You see, it wasn't an occasional thing. Go back and read your Old Testaments. It was a constant thing. God was laying his heart bare, you might say, to Israel, his people whom he foreknew. He always expressed to them through the prophets his willingness to save her if only she would. And are we surprised to find as I'll soon read the Lord Jesus expressing the very same thing to Jerusalem. And so we see how wrong it was for Israel to assume that she was saved already, even in the Old Testament. No, just because anyone belonged to this nation, even in the Old Testament, did not mean that he or she was saved. For they were, let us see again, an obstinate and disobedient nation. And so God was sternly and constantly all the day long rebuking her for her sin. He was all the day long sending judgments to her even before she entered the land. And yet all the while he was pleading with her through the prophets. He was saying this to sum up the message of Ezekiel. I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall utterly die. The soul that sins shall die and yet say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Oh, that you would turn and be saved. How willingly I would gather you under my wings. How willingly I would save you. But for all this. Now, I'm speaking in human terms. God never prevailed with Israel. There he was, ever pleading with her, even to the point. Think again of, I didn't read it, but I, I imagine uh, you, you're, you have this in mind. And if not, well, go back and read Matthew 21, the, the parable of, of the wicked vine dressers. 
even to the point of sending forth his own son, not just the prophets, but his own son to this nation whom he loved, this nation whom he foreknew. And yet they simply refused to believe and be saved. They refused to turn. Oh, why will you die? God said to them repeatedly. Will you not rather turn and live? And the answer of Israel was always the same. No, we will not. We will not turn. We will not live. They always stood ready, he says here, to contradict the message of the prophets. All day long I stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Their minds and their mouths were full of arguments against the messengers. They were contradicting them. They always, as Stephen said, always resist the Holy Spirit. They never did obey what they heard. They were an obstinate and disobedient people. Listen to how Stephen puts it in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is how he concludes the history of Israel. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Or to use the language of Psalm 95, again placing us in the wilderness before they entered the land in Hebrews chapter 3. Time and time again they heard the word of God and yet they hardened their hearts in unbelief. Now you read your Old Testament and tell me whether Stephen or the Apostle Paul or whether I'm being unfair to the Jewish people. Or is that the tale that is told? Time and again this is what we find. Not obedience, not glad acceptance. But rebellion and obstinance, you could not tell the story of the Old Testament without seeing this. So, too, you come to the Gospels and it's exactly what you find. The Jews whom Jesus preached to, they always stood ready to contradict him. They were never willing to listen to him. And we see how they treated the Lord Jesus, even to the point of putting him to death. We see how they treated Stephen and others in Acts. It was always the same. Israel was and is, let me say, in a state of continual and stubborn unbelief. Even to this day, a veil lies over their hearts. Second Corinthians chapter three. Are we surprised in light of this to see that the situation is what it is? In other words, that the Gentiles are in and that the Jews are out. This foolish nation, this new people that God is forming, the church comprised mainly of Gentiles. The Gentiles are in, the Jews are out. Are we surprised seeing the whole history of the Old Testament, even up through the pages of the New Testament? How long God waited for her, how many times God went out to her. He stood there with outstretched arms pleading to her. Why will you die? Why will you not be saved? Listen to how our Lord puts it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left has is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will you shall See me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So the kingdom of God was taken from her and given to a people bearing the fruits thereof. She really was a nation of wicked vine dressers. And are we then surprised to find her standing on the outside? Now, I think I put that as strongly as I possibly could. I don't know how to put it any stronger than that. And let me now ask this question. It is the inevitable question at this point. There is no way to preach Romans 10, and certainly not the end of Romans 10, without asking this question. Has God then cast away his people whom he foreknew? You see, that's the question. If I did not cause your heart to ask that question, then I have failed. In fact, if you haven't found in some sense you're saying to yourself, well, then he's cast off his people. He's finished with the Jews. You see, I haven't put things strongly enough. And yet here's the question. Has he cast away his people? I find that Christians today are increasingly willing to believe that he has. And I'll have an entire chapter to contend against such thought. It is against this notion, this erroneous notion that God has indeed finished. He's finished with the Jews, his people of old, whom he foreknew, whom he loved. The very nation that he constituted by his own grace that we read all about in the Old Testament. The notion that he's finished with them. No, he isn't, Paul says. I say then, has God, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Now, that is enough for us to see at this moment before we launch into that. I'm sorry to say it'll be three weeks before we launch into that. You'll see why in the weeks to come. But before we launch into that, that is enough for us to see already that we must banish this thought from our minds now and forever. No, God has certainly not finished with his people, though it seems that way. Let us acknowledge that. It does seem that way. It seems that way from the standpoint of the whole history of Scripture and the whole history of the world. And yet here's the amazing thing. No, he isn't finished with the Jews. There is a glorious future that awaits them, one that will be immeasurable riches to the church, which is to this day largely composed of Gentiles. What a great chapter now lies before us. And oh, that we would grasp its message. The message which is put like this in chapter 11. I do not desire, verse 25, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Well, what does that mean? What is the mystery? This is the thing for us to see. And in time, we will see it. For now, I say amen. And let us come to the table.